Welcome to Death Holler. Do you like scary movies? Welcome to Season 3. Slash or pass. There will be laughter. <laughs> tears. <laughs> tender moments. Jeez. Jeez. My special, special boy. But most of all, screams. <laughs> Remember, when you're in Death Holler, listener discretion is always advised. We hope you have a killer time. to death holler i'm your host and mask wearing psychopath the reverend dr death and joining me as always is my co-host law urena ready to celebrate all hallows eve urena uh you know i am i am i've got my own mask on i call it makeup but you know <laughs> uh does it make you look like a, a soulless maniac that just wants to kill um my husband says so so yeah <laughs> Uh, it's that time of year again, the time when all of us horror fans get to be our spookiest selves and the time of year when he comes back to Haddonfield, Illinois, to stalk and terrorize the citizens. That's right, dear listeners, after a year of reviewing slasher films, we are finally circling back to the one that officially started the genre. Michael Myers, Laurie Strode, and one Dr. Loomis will be part of our discussion this episode. We are covering this franchise a little bit differently than we did with Child's Play, Nightmare on M Street, and Friday the 13th. Since the Halloween timelines are as fractured as the fan base that loves them, we are reviewing the first two films, the originals from 78 and 81 respectively, and then Urena and myself will pick our individual favorites of the ones that remain. I'm sure this will lead to an interesting debate, if not between your host and amongst the listening audience. Yeah. However, y'all have to tune in for the second half of this episode to see what these mystery movies will be. We're not going to give any hints. Uh, so grab your favorite Halloween mask, spark up one for Annie if that's your thing, <laughs> and join us as we discuss Halloween and Halloween 2. First, if you're enjoying the podcast, we appreciate it if you would take the time to like, comment, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you prefer. It helps us get more visibility on podcast listings and helps us grow. 
Also consider following us on social media. You can find us on TikTok and Twitter under Death Holler Pod, and we can be found on Instagram and Facebook under Death Holler Podcast. We appreciate everyone who listens and hope you enjoy the show. Halloween from 1978. Tagline, the night he came home. Boo. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a pretty good one. It's okay, yeah. I mean, I it's kind of boring, but it works. Well, it also, considering, I mean, it started a whole genre. It's pretty good. Yeah, you know? that's true. Directed by John Carpenter, the legendary John Carpenter. Uh, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Uh, music by John Carpenter. Uh, made for a budget of $325,000. Went on to make $70 million. Holy shit. This is one of those weird instances that would never happen these days, but back in back in the time that it came out, they released this to a few theaters. It done super well, kept getting booked out. They released it to a few more, kept getting booked out, and they ran this thing for I want to say months. Like instead of it just being the the only current movie that mimics this is probably Top Gun Maverick, where they just left it in the theater to make as much fucking money as it would pull in. You yeah, know? I noticed that about <laughs> Top Gun, and I, I still haven't seen it, which is ironic, because I wanted to see it, but I was like, this thing's still in the theaters? Damn! Yeah, and th- and that's exactly what they did with Halloween. They just, more and more, like, cities, more and more states were just like, uh, this movie, people are clamoring for, let, I, let's check, you know, let's get this and show it, so. Yeah, fuck, dude. There's a reason why it is perpetually being made. I mean, some of our other big franchises, well, Chucky's different. I mean, they're still making, I mean, he's got his own TV show now. Uh, speaking of which, he refer- he went to Amityville in the TV show, so they have officially crossed over Chucky with Amityville. Shut the fuck up. Uh, but anyways, uh, but our other two big slashers, not when I'm straight and Friday the 13th due to various reasons, uh, haven't had a entry in almost a decade now, if not more, but, uh, Halloween speaking of, uh, just had the three movies that ended, you know, like maybe a year ago. And now, there was a big bidding war, and Miramax got back to rights, and they're going to make a TV show out of it. Oh, fuck yeah. What are they talking about releasing it on? Uh, they haven't said. Uh, Universal might try to get the you know uh, ability to put it on Peacock. I don't know. But uh, not only that, but they're talking about making a cinematic universe out of it and releasing movies too. So, I mean, it's, it, it, they're, it's, it's still a big franchise. There's still a lot of uh, money to be made with this. Yeah. Uh, principal players in the original movie was Jamie Lee Curtis. Her introduction, if you if you watch the opening credits, as Laurie Strode, the OG Final Girl, the one that set the rules for what a Final Girl actually is. I mean, Black Christmas might be the one that's officially the first slasher, but there wasn't an OG. There wasn't a true Final Girl in that movie. Laurie Strode is the is the Final Girl, the first one. Uh, she was also, we've already covered this movie, The Fog. Uh, she's in the TV show Scream Queens, uh, which we've talked about. Uh, we don't really have the time right now, but it would be good to like cover that episode per episode because it's a pretty, pretty funny show yeah. uh, from the same guy that made American Horror Story. Uh, she was in, obviously, a lot of the other Halloween movies, and we'll get to that top fractured timeline at some point in this podcast, but Halloween H2O, 
Halloween 2018, Kills and Ends. She was actually a, a uncredited voice on Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Wow. Um, uncredited voice in Escape from New York. Uh, she was in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I think she won an Academy Award for that one. Uh, True Lies, the newest Haunted Mansion that just came out. Uh, Knives Out, A Fish Called Wanda, Trading Places, Road Games, Terror Train, and of course we covered Prom Night uh, from 1980. Uh, that one's not very good. <laughs> At least not in my opinion. Uh, she's Nick a good Castle, dancer in it, though. She's a good dancer. Oh, uh, that's true. That disco dancing yeah. that she's got going on in that one. Uh, Nick Castle is Michael Myers, a.k.a. The Shape in this film, uh, who is our first true slasher in a movie. Uh, he was uh, actually in uh, Halloween 2018 and Ends, uh, and in Ends, he actually plays the shape again in the 1978 flashback scene that they have at the beginning of that movie. Okay. Nick. I was wondering about that. I was, I Googled ex- trying to get an explanation of what the shape was, and I'm not getting clarification on that. Can you please help me out? It's just their name for Michael Myers. Like, I mean, when he puts the mask on. Like, okay. I, in the trivia, I'll get to it. There were five people that played Michael Myers in this first movie. Okay. Officially. And they give Nick Castle the credit as the shape because he is the stalking, uh, you know, eyeless, you know, soulless creature that's like going after the, the all the people in the movie. Yeah. Anybody who's got a face in the movie is Michael Myers. So they, they specifically called it the shape, the one with the mask on. Okay. Uh, he was uh, he was also in Halloween Ends as a flasher. Yes. Uh, Nick Castle was. Uh, he was in Dark Star. Uh, he was the writer of Escape from uh, from New York and director for The Last Starfighter and Major Pain. Wow. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, Donald Pleasance plays Dr. Samuel Loomis, for the first time, but definitely not the last time. He is Michael's Van Helsing. <laughs> yes. And that is truly what he is. Uh, he was in Halloween 2, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, uh, The Paganini Horror, uh, Prince of Darkness, Alone in the Dark, The Devonsville Terror, The Monster Club, Escape from New York, where he plays the president in that one, and Dracula, nineteen seventy nine. At any point in his life, did he ever do the voice for Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> you would think that he could have, based upon how he sounds in Part Four, for sure. Michael, <laughs> no. <laughs> I just, uh, I don't know. I was listening. And I was like, why the fuck does he sound like Winnie the Pooh? And so now that stuck with me through all the six films he was in. Well, not six, but I mean, five. Not counting three. Officially, the guy who did the voice for Winnie the Pooh is the same guy who did the voice for Darkwing Duck. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know. he's talented. Uh, Charles and Charles Cyphers plays Sheriff Lee Brackett, who is Annie's pops and has a terrible sense of smell. Oh, tell if, me about it. If he can't, if he couldn't tell that Pop was rolling out of that car. Uh, he had to have known. He had to have known. That's that's all I can say. I yeah, mean, that or he had COVID at some point and it really fucked him up, you know? Because <laughs> back in the day, I mean, they, there's some stinky weed now, but it was really bad back in the day. So, I mean, there's no way. There's no <laughs> way, yeah. And then they're just kind of, qu- they're like blowing like 
you know, not blowing, but like waving their hands in front of their face, like just like trying to get rid of the smell in front of him. It's like, what the fuck? Like that, first of all, like that would even do anything if it was tobacco cigarettes. Yes. Secondly, it's definitely not pot. But, no. Uh, he was in Assault on Precinct 13 in 1976, which is Carpenter's, one of his earliest, earliest films. Uh, he was in The Fog that we covered. Uh, he was in Major League, uh, Halloween Kills in the flashback scene, uh, Loaded Weapon 1, Freddy's Nightmare for one episode, uh, Freddy's Nightmares, I should say, and Death Wish 2 Wow, with Charles Bronson. Uh, Kyle Richards plays Lindsay Wallace, the child that Annie is supposed to be babysitting instead of trying to get laid. That little brat-ass <laughs> child. <laughs> I would totally uh, want to go off and fuck, too, because that kid was getting on my last nerve. <laughs> uh, well, she got <laughs> to be a little Tommy Doyle, and that's who she really wanted to be with anyway. So yeah, that's, that's that. true. Uh, she was in Eating Alive, uh, and she returns in both Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends uh, as the same character, actually. God, and uh, she Brian. is hot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brian Andrews plays Tommy Doyle, the child that Laurie is babysitting. Uh, he didn't go on to do anything else, unfortunately, for him. That I, that, well, not much. There was like three movies, and I never heard of them. Uh, Sandy Johnson plays Judith Myers, Michael's older sister, who's a hoe. <laughs> and she was in Halloween 2018, obviously in a different role, because otherwise yeah. she would have just been a rotting corpse somewhere. Um, who was, do, you, do, do we know who she was in 2018? I have no idea. Like, I just watched the movie, and I'm trying to think of who she would have been. She has to be just, like, some random person yeah. in, in the background or one of, the or town one of those folk. things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Barry Bernardi plays the dead mechanic. Uh, he had a jumpsuit that had uh, – Michael's jumpsuit had to come from somewhere, folks, and that's from the dead mechanic, you know, so there he is. If I've learned, credit. Yeah, if I've learned anything about these, you know, Halloween movies, Michael Meyer movies, is that – all the mechanics in this film are ginormous. They are all six foot and above, brooding, huge, and uh, they their clothes fit Michael Myers to a T. They do, and they should probably not uh, have them on, or they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be killed the way they are in yeah, every movie. That's true. Uh, Nancy Keys, aka, AKA Nancy Loomis, plays Annie Brackett, Laurie's BFF. Um, she was in Assault on Precinct 13 uh, in 1976. Uh, she makes a brief appearance as a corpse in Halloween 2, being hauled out on a stretcher. Uh, she's in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and she's in The Fog. Okay, wait a second. Nancy Keys, a.k.a. Nancy Loomis? What? Her, na uh, her name that she filmed, uh, she goes by Nancy or Nancy Keys now, but she was Nancy Loomis back in the day when she was the actress okay. in these movies. That's so funny. And, and that could have been the reason that Dr. Samuel Loomis has that last name. Okay, interesting. Uh, John Michael Graham plays Bob Sims, Linda's man, and he ain't afraid of no ghost. That 100% <laughs> my favorite Michael Myers ever. Michael Myers. That will be uh, tattooed on my arm. Uh, it was one of the, the only, uh, I mean, I, I've got rid of it since because of space issues, but it was the only uh, toy that I ever bought of Michael Myers was the was the ghost version with the glasses on. Oh, you don't have it anymore? I don't. I, I ended up selling it when we made the movie. Ugh. So. Ugh, I hate you. <laughs> uh, 
I had to keep something and I kept my zombie toys, okay? <laughs> well, decisions were made and I'm not going to say that they were good ones. <laughs> uh, PJ Souls plays Linda Vanderclock. Wow. Um, uh, looking for some cock. Uh, friend <laughs> Annie and Laurie and she's a hoe for show. For show. Uh, she was in Carrie in 1976, which is actually got her, got her the role in this movie. Uh, she was in Stripes, Rock and Roll High School, Halloween 2018, The Devil's Rejects, and The Tooth Fairy. Jesus. So she's been in some uh, pretty good horror movies. Synopsis. After a night of trick-or-treating, young Michael Myers decides to kill his older sister. Why? Because he's evil, apparently. Skip ahead 15 years and Michael escapes from Smith's Grove Sanitarium where Dr. Samuel Loomis and Nurse Marion Chambers were sent to retrieve him to stand trial for his crimes. Myers travels back to Haddonfield, Illinois and grabs a creepy William Shatner mask to start killing babysitters and their lovers. Laurie Strode is the only survivor of Michael's trail of death. Linda bears him, Michael scares him, and Dr. Loomis has seen the face of pure evil. This Halloween, everyone is entitled to one good scare. Is that a tagline from this movie? It is. Jesus, and they use it multiple times throughout. (laughs) Well, Sheriff Brackett's the one that uses it in the film that everybody's aware of, yes. (laughs) Okay. Also, I just want to let you know right now, um, your Michael Myers ghost toy is going for no less than $360. That's on the low end, FYI, and as high as $2,000. It wasn't worth that much whenever I sold it. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. I got a decent amount out of it. Um, which tells me that I'll never fucking own that thing. Oh, wait, they have one for $45. But it's a different one. Anyways, continue. All right, body count. This is a low one, folks, but this is the OG. So there's, you know, some concessions to be made. Five people. Judith Myers, stabbed nine times with a butcher knife. <laughs> uh, the mechanic dude, don't know what happened to him. He just saw his body saw in the grass and with some blood. Annie Brackett, strangled, has her throat slit with, uh, with a butcher knife. Bob is stabbed through the chest with a butcher knife while Michael enjoys his work of art. <laughs> and Linda is strangled to death with a phone cord. Non-counted deaths, Edith Myers, an off-screen car accident, apparently. Peter Myers, an off-screen car accident. This must be mentioned in the movie. Yeah. Although I don't ever remember hearing any of this, but I don't ever focus on that. I think for sure part two, but I'm not one hundo. Uh, rut row folks. And this is a rut row for the entire series because several times Michael Myers kills dogs. I'm just telling you, yeah. but he unofficially strangled poor Lester to death, who was just trying his best to protect Annie, even though she didn't appreciate what he was trying to do. Yeah. And, uh, I was not, I was not happy. I was not happy at all. Uh, Jason Voorhees would never. Uh, no, even in the movie where he might have, he still didn't. Mm-mm. Is what we officially said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in space, even if that ship blew up and killed a bunch of dogs, that was the pilot, Fat Lou. That yes. wasn't my, Fat Lou's Jason. fault. <laughs> Jason didn't know. Uh, uh, and also, an unnamed dog is strangled and eaten by Michael at his old home, apparently, yeah. which is unseen by the audience. It's yeah. mentioned in the movie. Other taglines. The trick was to stay alive. I do like that. He's come back. He did. The one, the only, the classic Halloween. Of course, that's from later on whenever it got re-released. 
He came home for Halloween. I would come home for Halloween. So I'm not mad. <laughs> Trick or treat, dot, 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 or die. I do like that one. Let's celebrate the horror. I mean, we celebrate the horror every, every like, few weeks. So, like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, happy Halloween, exclamation mark. It's straight. It's to the point. Yeah. The trick is to stay alive, exclamation mark. So ah. it's just, a, you know, they, they got to emphasize it this They time. went from a period to an exclamation mark. Folks, it got real serious. <laughs> Quotes. And, of course, Loomis is going to be most of them because he gives all the exposition in these movies. Uh, you got to read it in Pooh Bear voice. No, I'm just kidding. I, I can't do his voice, so I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with a blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. <laughs> it's a good setup for the character yeah. I mean, for Loomis to be basically talking him, uh, talking him up, hopping him up. He's, he's a good wingman, I guess. Yeah. Uh, bracket, of course. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. We get it. <laughs> Uh, Laurie, it was the boogeyman, Loomis. As a matter of fact, it was. I do love that, actually. That that interaction's pretty good. Really good between the both of them. Yes. Uh, Doctor Wynn. Now, for God's sake, he he can't even he he can't even drive a car, Loomis. He was doing very well last night. Maybe someone around here gave him <laughs> lessons. He was pretty good, considering he's never driven a car a day in his life, and he's been locked up since he was a child. Yeah. Now. I had to put that in there because this that's the one thing in the OG movie that I think is absolutely fucking ridiculous. <laughs> uh, Linda exposing her breast. See anything you like? <laughs> and then Loomis to bracket. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff. Loomis is so fucking dramatic. Like, and like, he is like not even zero to sixty in three seconds. He's like sixty right off the start. Like I mean, this is spoiling something in Death Hall Awards, but between Loomis and Crazy Ralph, who's the better Doom Prophet? Better Doom Prophet, Ralph, because at least he can remain calm. <laughs> Loomis just sounds fucking crazy, and he also sounds like Winnie the Pooh. So he sounds like a crazy Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> oh no, everybody! What? what? Hey, Michael's came, Piglet. He's <laughs> came back to town. <laughs> what are we going to do, Piglet? Oh, bother. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, movie review time. I fucking love this movie. I'm biased. I can't really, I, I can't really break it down. The re This movie, it shouldn't, as old as it is, shouldn't be as good as it is. It just shouldn't be, but it, but it is a great movie to me yeah um okay <laughs> i struggle and I can, with I, I'm, I'm figuring that there's gonna be some debate from you on this so i'm gonna throw it out there first and then we'll get into the particulars about why i think that it stands the test of time but go ahead uh as a slasher yeah it's killer <laughs> okay but everything else in this movie drove me crazy and this movie was the start of me realizing that Lori Strode was not 
the final girl that I thought she was. They make her the final girl later. Later, they do. Yes, I agree. Because I have watched, I can officially say, thanks to this podcast, I have watched every single Halloween film, unless there's fan films out there that I haven't seen. Uh, there are, but okay. I'm not too fond of them. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, and that's not anything we can really get into. I don't have anything to give on that. But, yeah, uh, there was there was a lot of things I didn't like at this, at this film. But we have seen worse. It's not an utter failure for me by any means. But, yeah, I was like, what the fuck? It was maybe more of a heartbreak because it was like, well, wait a second. I... Why don't I remember this Laurie Strode? Well, I guess maybe I haven't watched this movie all the way through or I've forgotten. One thing that you got to remember about Laurie Strode and why she's the OG final girl, she does take the fight to the killer, not once, not twice, but three times in this movie. Yes, she throws the knife away about as many times <laughs> as she stabs him, but she stabs him. Um, I'm trying to think of all the, the ways that she does. She stabs him for sure with a coat hanger or with a clothes hanger. She stabs him with his own knife. Um, There's one other time whenever he breaks into the house and she stabs him with something else. And, uh, and that's whenever he uh, it's, she's got something in her hand. He, and then she stabs him. He leaves the knife there and she gets the knife, but then she drops it because she thinks he's dead on the floor. Yeah, but she does take she does take the fight to him directly. She also likes to slide against the wall a lot in tears and crying, which I get. I would probably do the same. But you know what I didn't understand in this movie? What's the deal with people running into houses of people that have just been slashed? Like, maybe I've seen too many slasher films, but why are you going into that house? I'm going to well, call the police from across the street, yo. She didn't know that Annie... And the well, even she didn't. I don't think she even knew that. Uh, what was her name, Lynn or whatever? I'm Linda. Sure, I'm, Linda. She didn't know that Linda was even over there. She just thought that Annie was over there with Paul. Yeah. And she went to go check on him because she was concerned, and then she found the dead bodies. So yeah. she technically doesn't run into a house full of dead bodies. She she happens upon it. Wasn't so. Linda like at the bottom of the stairs though? Like when you first no, walk in? She's in the closet. She's the she's the freaky reveal in that room. So oh, when she goes in the room, okay. Annie's laid on the bed with Judith Myers like uh yes, I remember that. like presented the the pumpkins there, nice visual effect. And then whenever uh she's doing the thing that you're talking about where she's slinking back and kind of sliding on the wall a little bit, she notices that uh, Bob is stabbed to the door yes. and that freaks her out. And then uh, there's like a closet that's right beside of her and it opens up. And that's whenever you see Linda, who is just kind of, she's got like this like creepy looking like death, like, you know, Rick, this face or whatever, yeah. you know, where she's dead in the closet. Okay. I'm thinking of part two. So uh, part two We'll get to, yes, yeah. uh, there is a lot of bad in part two. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, but, um, so, yeah, I mean, as a slasher again, it, it, it definitely kills it. Um, Not my number one choice. I don't know, other than to see Ghost Michael, you know, with the sheet over and the glasses on, which, what the fuck is the, what's the reason? I guess to look like her boyfriend, which is hilarious. So, yeah, so he could look like Bob. But yeah, it's not what I don't. I don't think this will be like. Oh, it's on. I'll watch it. It wouldn't be my number one pick for sure. 
this is the only one in the series that I'd say that I would for sure watch if it was on TV. Um, and the reason I say that is I feel like between how Carpenter filmed Michael, how he's always like just outside of, he's outside of the view of most of the characters yeah. in the movie. He's in, he's in the perimeters. He's got that. It's kind of spooky that he's like kind of hanging around. Uh, the mask completely hides his eyes. I love that. So, you don't. he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't look like, you know, a person, Unlike H2O, which we'll kind of give a brief, you know, review on, I guess, you know, or whatever, uh, when we're just kind of talking about the movies in general. In H2O, you can see that Michael's fucking eyes the entire time because the mask was too damn tight, and he looks fucking stupid as a result. (sighs) Um, But, like, there's just, and the music is, like, perfectly scored to the movie. Like, you know, that the way that he does that. The music definitely Uh, saves this film for me. uh, Oh, everybody agrees that the music saves the movie. Like, I mean, the music's what adds to the movie, but it adds just enough to put it over the top for me. Like, yeah. I mean, the there's no, I mean, like, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis does a pretty good job of being a sympathetic final girl. Dr. Loomis isn't over, he isn't over, over like he is in like some of the other movies as far as like his just outgoing personality. He's semi-coherent in this one, you know, versus some of the other <clears> ones. <throat> Um, Lee Brackett's pretty likable. Uh, I don't know. There's just, there's a lot in this movie. I just like how for the budget they had, they, they knocked it out of the fucking park. This looks like a much bigger budget movie compared, especially compared to say a movie like the burning or one of those other ones or like prom night that we saw, which looked cheaper in all aspects, even though they, they had higher budgets yeah. in a lot of cases. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> oh my god i'm not going to convince you that this movie's perfect but for me it, it is yeah. like i mean i now <clears throat> would i prefer to watch this movie versus like a friday the 13th movie probably not i mean even though i le- legitimately think this is a well more well-made movie than most of the friday or movies yeah uh oh yeah I, I will give it that like when it comes to friday Especially like Friday, you know, the 13th, the original, and then part two. Yeah, this definitely looks a lot more. Like, I would say the blood looks pretty good in this film, too. Well, the funny thing to me is is that I I don't like part one as well in Friday because it looks dated. It looks cheap. I like this better than a lot of its sequels. And I think that goes to show that Carpenter and Carpenter officially didn't want to make any he thought this movie should have been a one and done and i'm not opposed to that point of view from him i know there's plenty of michael fans out there that's like how dare you say that we appreciate all the 13 different ones that we have or whatever it ends up being like that's fine i mean there's something in some you know and that to be appreciated in some of the other ones but it really, if it ended with this one, we would have been okay. Yeah. I mean, because it's pretty good for what it is. And I feel like that a lot of the other movies just basically steal from this one. Like, I mean, especially if you watch 2018, there's a lot of shots where they basically just take from the first movie, like whenever uh, Laurie's granddaughter is looking outside the window, just like Laurie was inside of the school in this one. They just flipped a shot to where instead, or they flip it around instead of whenever Laurie's granddaughter is looking out the window, she sees Laurie standing yeah. out there kind of staring at her versus in this one, of course, it's Michael and he's, you know, kind of creepy, just kind of hanging around. Yeah. So, 
It gave a good creep factor in 2018, honestly, because it's like, why the fuck is she staring at her like that? Why is she looking all Michael-y, you know? Yeah, but uh, there's there's a lot of the other movies that, that go back to this one and kind of borrow elements. So they, they, they know what they're getting from this movie. Yeah. I mean, and for reference for the listeners, we're talking about one and two just because, like, those are, like, the originals. We're going to talk about three because I think I can speak for both of us when I say we both liked three, but it's not a Michael Myers movie. No, he's in the movie yeah. technically on screen, but that is the extent of it. It it was Carpenter's attempt. What Carpenter wanted to do with the Halloween series after this first movie was to make it an anthology to where it was just based around Halloween, but it was a different story every time. Yeah, which might have been cool. And I'll say that he did a good job on three, and we will discuss that during which season. But, yeah. uh, One and two we're going to discuss. We might give some basic discussions about four, five, uh, six, God, seven. When does it start getting into, is seven technically the Rob Zombie ones? No. um, That's eight, huh? So so I guess we should go into the timelines of these movies right now. Okay. Okay. so there's the original that we just reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's part two that takes place immediately after, immediately. which we're going to review. I'll respect that, yes. Um, and then it branches out from there. So three is its own thing altogether, like we said. Yep. It has nothing to do with any of them. Fans got pissed. They were like, we want Michael back. Uh, fuck you for whoever thought, which was a John Carpenter, uh, <laughs> for whoever thought this was a good idea. And so they brought him back in four. So, okay, one, two, and four, then five and six make their own timeline. Okay. And in that timeline, we've got Laurie Strode in the first one. She's, you know, she gets transported to the hospital in the, in the second movie immediately after. Uh, survives Michael at the end where Loomis blows himself up, it looks <laughs> like. And Michael walks out and he's on fire and he falls over end of the movie we cue the music for mr sandman and we're you know we're out yeah part four picks up uh several years later uh now we are uh seeing this little kid named jamie lloyd who is uh actually uh laurie's daughter but laurie is dead her and her husband died in a car accident and Michael is being, uh, he's, he's been in a coma since uh, he, he survived. He's a burn victim and Loomis survived too. And he's a burn victim. There's, there's burn makeup on him now. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, Michael suddenly wakes up, uh, and he decides that he's, you know, going to go back to Haddonfield and he's going to try to kill Laurie's daughter. We don't know why he's just coming back to kill her. Um, and how he knows she has a daughter is beyond me. Uh, it, well, that's what they get into because they make four, uh, four could stand on its own. It could like they, they've got a story in that one. Uh, and I'm not going to go into it much more because yeah. I don't know what your pick is. So I'm just going to leave it off there. And we, if it's your pick, if not, we can discuss it later. Okay. But four could end on its own the way they ended it, but they retcon <sighs> the ending of part four. Yes, they did. Uh, they make Michael, uh, they retcon his ending And he floats down the river at the beginning of part five, uh, lives in a crab shack in a coma for a year, suddenly wakes up, decides he's going to kill some more people because it's (laughs) Halloween again. 
And this time he drives around in a uh, black muscle car pretending to be another character. Oh yeah. Uh, while his, uh, niece is psychically connected to him for some fucking unknown reason. Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> and we get to the end of the movie and the entire movie, there's some gentleman walking around with silver toed boots clacking around and a cane. We never see his face. At the end of the movie, when Michael has been arrested, uh, this this man goes into the uh, the police uh, precinct. He helps Michael escape, and then he blows up the place. And it looks like that may. And then uh, Jamie looks like she barely escapes getting blown up. The little girl, his niece, and that's kind of how that movie ends. And then we get into part six, and it looks like there's a cult, a druidic cult, <laughs> that has somehow used Michael as the like the vessel for whatever dark god that they worship, Sam Hain, which is not even how that's pronounced, Loomis, it's Samhain, but whatever. Um, <laughs> he has, this druidic cult has used Michael to conduct its killings for, for them, but now they need to pass it on to someone else. And the only way they can do that is if he kills the last of his uh, line and I, and I don't understand this part. I don't know why they didn't just, they had Jamie, they somehow at the end of the fifth movie, they kidnapped Jamie, right? As the police were like, you know, scattering, you know, scattered around trying to figure out who blew up the police, you know, barracks. Yeah. And during this time, it's hinted that Michael has raped Jamie. She is having an incest baby at the beginning of it. This is many years down the road. Um, and, and she is going to carry and she is trying to escape with this baby so that it can live and michael has to kill this child in order to for the evil to pass on to someone else so the whole cycle can get started anew i don't know why don't know anything about it all i know is paul rudd's in it and his acting is really strange <laughs> um loomis is even bug fuck crazier but this time this time the burn makeup's gone because he has had lots of uh, surgeries to get rid of the scars. Basically, the producers are looking at the audience saying, we couldn't afford the makeup anymore, so we had to come up with a bullshit reason why he's not scarred any longer. Okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we get to the end of the movie, and they end up... Um, let me see how, that, how the movie ends. I watched the producer's cut, so it's slightly different. You end up getting to the end of that movie, and Michael kills the the guy who is the 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 silver tip shoes who's the leader of the cult which yep. happens to be loomis's uh former like head of the the chief of staff at the smith's grove sanitarium and uh loomis uh looks up and michael is gone i believe and uh let's see uh they've got the the baby and uh, Tommy Doyle, which is Paul Rudd, and um, there was like a girl that was involved. I think she, oh, the girl is like Laurie Strode's like a adopted sister or something like that. They they somehow bring the Strodes back into it, and or no, it's like her cousin or something like that. She's an extended Strode for some reason. Yeah, they escape with a baby, and they're going to some other state so that Michael can't get to him, and that's how the movie ends. Ends on a cliffhanger, basically. And then they totally reset the canon from all that bullshit for H2O and say, okay, only one, two, and H2O occurred. Yes. So now uh, 
Jamie Lee Curtis has a son. She is living in a secluded uh, college somewhere, uh, college campus where she is a professor, and her son Josh Hartnett with a <laughs> terrible, terrible fucking haircut. Oh yeah, is uh, there? Uh, she is. She's got the same kind of trauma that she has in the 2018 movies, but in a bad way, in the sense that you would think that if she's lived, this is 20 years on now from the original attack, that she would be preparing for the inevitable time when Michael would come back, even though everybody thought he was dead. And even she says he'll eventually come back, but she spent no time preparing for that inevitability at all. Like when he shows up, she's as worthless as she was in the first movie. Pretty much. Yeah. And, um, you can't kill LL Cool J at all. Nope. And uh, eventually, uh, Laurie decides, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take him in this ambulance. I'm gonna fucking see if I can just outright kill him." And then she cuts his fucking head off at the end of the movie. And you think, and and she has this touching moment where she almost connects with her brother for a split second because he still is her brother in this continuity. And and then she's like, nope. And then she chops his head off. But skip to resurrection, which is the follow up to H two O. It was an ambulance driver that Michael had somehow put his mask on. Mm-hmm. And Michael kills Laurie at the beginning of the movie. And then the rest of the movie is Buster Rhymes kicking Michael's ass with kung fu or some bullshit. I don't know. I only saw it part of the way one time, and I'm like, never again. Yeah, I only made it part of the way through Resurrection, and I was like, I can't do this. So that just goes to show you, I think we can agree right now, that is our worst pick. Uh, yeah, that's not going to be on any of our list. Um, and that say, that's a spoiler, I guess, but it's not on The there. only thing I liked about that movie is how they explained that how the guy that she killed wasn't Michael Myers, which sent her to the, the psych ward, because... She, he, Michael Myers dressed him up as himself, but also crushed his larynx so he couldn't say anything. And whenever he's sitting there and in that scene, it, it retcons what the meaning of that scene is then the H2O. Instead of it being Michael reaching out and trying to have a connection, a mm-hmm. human connection with Laurie for the first time, it's just that driver yes. trying to say, please, for the love of God, help me. Yeah. I'm not who you think I am. But he can't know? actually speak. So I, that's the only lick of respect that film will get from me and nothing further (laughs) okay so we've got two continuities going so far we've got one and two three four and five or i guess in the six or no three three is its own yeah yeah one two four five and six is its own continuity we've got one two and h2o now we're just doing away with all of that and we've got rob zombies Halloween, which is a remake, and then Halloween 2, which is his follow-up to Halloween. They're their own thing. They take, I mean, they're basically the same story as the original, mm-hmm. uh, or at least the first movie yeah. is, although he goes into a lot more detail about, he gives more background for Michael. He makes him, you get into Michael's head and you see yes. how Michael got to that point. Yeah, which was kind of cool. I'm not going to lie. It's if you're going to remake the movie and not remake it completely like they did with Psycho and totally and just like what the fucking point you know we've got the original we don't need to just I think Zombie did the right thing he's like okay I'm gonna go I'm just going he's not just this faceless you know evil he came from a bad family and he and he saw like and he did the killing and then he just regressed and then like it just went from there you know. Uh, he did uh, which, have one thing he loved, and only one thing, and that was Baby Boo. Yeah, 
Angel, baby yes. Angel, yeah. Which, um, um, well, he called he called her Boo, but you did not know that. As far as I knew at the beginning, I didn't hear anything indicating that she was a girl or not. Uh, no, and that's why. And then they get to the and then, but he establishes pretty early in this one. Zombie does that. Uh, Laurie Strode is the sister. Like, I mean, full on like sister. You know, yeah. instead of like it being a retcon that part two, which we'll get to in a second, actually did. Um. And then in uh, H2O, or I'm not H2O, in Halloween 2, he takes the immediately, he immediately follows up what happens in the first one Mm -hmm. with a trauma of um, Laurie shooting her brother in the head. And then you go through this whole thing where it skips ahead a little bit and she's, you know, and it shows like the aftermath of her with uh, living with the brackets, basically. Yeah. Uh, And Annie barely survived, but she is there and, and and there's a lot, and he goes into a lot of different things in that movie. Uh, it's pretty well hated amongst the fans because of the horse and all that other oh, stuff. Oh God, so. that was just he just went too far off. And then that's the end of that continuity. So then we skip ahead, and David Gordon Green just recently completed this trilogy, and we get we skip we do away with all of the previous two doesn't even factor in the original part two. It was just OG 78, and now we skip ahead 40 years, and Laurie Strode is the version that I think she would have been Yes, uh, in 2018. She is a hardcore survivalist who has been waiting for the day that Michael would fucking, you know, get released again, and she would have to kill him finally. Uh, she is not his sister. She was just a random person, which is what the best thing about this first movie uh, she was just a random person that he happened to target because she came to his parents' house at the wrong time and got in his crosshairs, you know? Yeah, that was just a rumor somebody started. Yeah. <laughs> I I could not believe that when I heard that. I was like, what? And then we go through the events of that. At the end of him, she's uh, her and her daughter. She has has had a daughter in this continuity, not a son like an H2O. Uh, but not, uh, but she's also obviously not dead, so not you know uh, Jamie Lloyd. Uh, so now we've got a new daughter and a granddaughter, and her daughter has nothing to do with her because she was taken at age twelve by child protective services because Laurie was crazy and as a fox, and you know tried to raise her for you know to be a prepper to you know, and and they were like, okay, this kid's not getting what it needs whatever yeah and her daughter's grown up to hate her but her granddaughter is the one trying to be the peacemaker in the family and try to get them to reconnect yes and at the end of the movie laurie is proven correct uh the family the three the three women of the family join together and they burn michael alive and it would have been fine if they ended it there but then we get kills and they retcon that ending slightly to where he he hid in some corner that wasn't on fire until a fireman broke down in there, and then he killed him and immediately broke out and started killing every firefighter that came to the scene of the, the event. And then we get a whole movie where he's basically Jason Voorhees, mm-hmm. killing people with, like, broken halogen lights in <laughs> uh, very gruesome fashion, by the way. Yeah. A lot of people don't like kills. I think that the actual kills in that movie are fucking badass and mm-hmm. that, like, it's... Actually, one of my favorites is because I he is like Jason and 
I like Jason better, but you know, there is, that is what it is. Uh, You Um, know, it sucks because in 18, we get the Lori that we've always wanted. And in kills, we get the Michael that we've always wanted. Yes. And, and that's the other thing that's bad about kills is that Lori is the way that she is in the original two, which is basically a worthless piece of shit that's sitting in the hospital. She tries to get up, but she is so wounded somehow. I think she gets attacked beginning of the movie. They didn't know Michael stabbed her a couple times. Yeah. Yeah, he gets her uh, in the movie, and and anytime she tries to move, she's basically bleeding out. So she's she's sidelined. Yes. Uh, her and uh, what is bracket? The, the, I think. Bra- no, it's it's not bracket. Um, it, it's something. It starts with an L. I can't remember what the the cop's name is off the top of my head. But. Okay, hold on, I'm looking. But go ahead. Uh, and then we get to that to the end of that movie, and the big reveal is is uh, Evil Dies Tonight, which is the most hated thing in that movie from people and got made fun of, and kind of rightfully so because they do it one too many times. To- well, actually, probably four t- times too many. Uh, but as Tommy Doyle, who's now been played by uh, the actor who was in The Breakfast Club and uh, in, in the original uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, uh, him and some other town members are surrounding Michael. They've got him down for the count. They beat the shit out of him. By all account, he gets shot. By all accounts, he should die. But in this one, there's a twist. The evil is repowered. Michael powers back up like a fucking, uh, you know, robot that's been given uh, all kinds of juice. And he fucking tears up hell, including Laurie's daughter, oh, who yeah. is killed in the final scene. And then we go to ends, which, which by is, the way, I think you were talking about, um, God damn it. I lost him. Officer Hawkins. Hawkins. Yeah. Yes. I, I think it was Lee Hawkins. Yes. His name. Yeah. Uh, that's why I said L cause I knew it was some L name, but yeah, Hawkins is last name. Um, we go to ends, which I personally liked the, the way they were going with ends when they set up a new killer in Corey, but basically Michael is just hanging around the fucking sewer He's depowered because nobody in the town cares about him anymore. And apparently Aww. that's the only way that that's the only way that he has his power for some reason. It's like Santa, you have to believe. <laughs> and he sounds and, and and it's well, it's almost like actually, now that I say it, it is Freddy versus Jason because he sends Corey out to do the killing for him yes. so that people start believing so that he can get powered back up. Oh my god. I did not like ends. Uh, I, I like the stuff of Corey, but then they totally fucking did away with all of that at the end of it. They, they, uh, spoiler alert, they kill Corey. Uh, the whole thing, they were working with the granddaughter, like turning over to the evil side and going with Corey. They totally do away with, she instantly believes her grandmother. Uh, Laurie, for some reason, this one is happy go lucky, even though, uh, her daughter's dead. You would think she'd be more of a hermit than even in the first movie, but no, and finally, she has her geriatric match with a geriatric uh, <laughs> Michael, uh, with her granddaughter helping, and they throw and, and all the people in Haddonfield throw him in a wood chipper, and yay, he's dead. Except when you know he's brought back by Miramax, but whatever. No, you know it's the uh, it's the battle between Lori and Michael we've always wanted. Except I got that in 2018, and it was more yeah. satisfying. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like N, so uh, it's safe to say, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not my pick, but I, I did like the fight because it was, uh, you're right. Okay. 
See, I'm the complete opposite. I hate everything to do with Laurie and Michael and ends. They set up Corey as being like the the one who would take up the mantle, who would take up the mask. Yeah. And they totally pussied out because everybody was like, you can't have this in without Laurie and Michael finally killing each other. And it's just like, and they're like, okay. I mean, and they, I'm with the people of Haddonfield. Like, I wanted that showdown, and I did not fucking like Corey. I thought he... I thought them taking the film in the direction they did, you you liked it, and I mean that's cool. But like, I was like, what the fuck is this fucking bullshit? This is some Kmart shit right here. I liked it because it was different. I mean, we've oh, seen yeah. so many fucking movies with Michael just being the same fucking thing in every fucking movie, and they were setting up something where his evil was being his, you know passed on to somebody else and that was a cool concept it was but like was this just a kid that was obsessed with him or like why did michael choose of all the people michael's had so many chances you know because Corey is the one person in town that could would be most likely to, to take it on because he they set up in the movie he is the reverse laurie strode he was a babysitter yeah but instead of becoming the hero he became the villain because he freaked out and got the the kid that he was supposed to be babysitting killed and then he became a fucking town pariah and then and everybody in Haddonfield puts their hate onto him and it's yeah. that hate that allowed that michael you know was feeding into yes yes let the hate flow through you uh that kill on that kid was fucking awesome <laughs> that was sick i liked that death scene but I, but I still think that they were going in a cool direction, and they didn't, and they half-assed the movie and gave you part of a movie you wanted, and gave me part of a movie I wanted, and didn't make either one of us happy. Oh yeah, I agree. Like I think we we're both <laughs> left unsatisfied with that film. No cigarette uh, smoking after that. No, it, no, no. Uh, two cigarettes being lit up, and you know, yeah. go get me a beer, you know, or anything after that ending. It's uh, like, uh you get blue balls, and that's yeah. basically Don't it. Don't call me; I'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the fractured fucked up continuity of this series it keeps getting rebooted every couple of movies into something else do we know how many children laurie strode had uh three so in one continuity she had jamie lloyd and then died in a car accident uh in another continuity she had josh hartnett and uh you know and he had a better haircut and then in the last continuity she had whatever her daughter's name is. I don't really know. And then her granddaughter. Karen. And that's yeah. Karen. Her daughter's name was Karen. Oh, literally. She was a Karen. So. Oh, she was a Karen. She had her Karen moments too, which was so funny. Uh, yeah. That's the only thing I don't like about the, the Gordon, David Gordon Green series is there's some woke elements that get in those movies that kind of just, just eat me out a little bit. I, the whole thing with like her granddaughters, I mean, this is a review of that movie and I'm not trying to be, but like, I just watched it. Her granddaughter, like going to the prom with that guy and then like, you know, and, and they do the reverse Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And, like, he's, I, I don't know. I was just like, really? We got some feminized like piece of shit. I, you know, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. Like, I think it's funny that she knew she had enough sense to like, when he started to tell that they were going to do the reverse, to her conservative parents, so she was like, nope, nope, nope we're don't just do that. Clyde. Oh, my God. I mean, I thought it was hilarious, but you notice he totally went for the hot babe dressed as a fucking tiger. Cat. Yeah, Rawr. the cat lady. Yeah. yeah, she was hot. And I was like, you can't wear that to a fucking high school dance. 
<laughs> no, that's not how that works. But you know what? What do I know? Also, high school dances just, even in California, we don't have high school dances like that. <laughs> they do in Haddonfield, so. Apparently. Well, Haddonfield also has Michael Myers, so there you go. <laughs> All right, let's get in the trivia for this first movie since we've kind of broken all that down. John Carpenter considered the hiring of Jamie Lee Curtis as the ultimate tribute to Sir Alfred Hitchcock, who had given her mother, Janet Lee, legendary status in Psycho from 1960. For the same reason, during the same period, Universal Studio producers and director Richard Franklin were trying to enroll Jamie Lee in the new production of Psycho 2 that was, you know, going on in 83. Wow. Uh, because of the film's tight budget, the production design, Tommy Lee Wallace had to use, or designer had to use uh, whatever he had as disposable or had to buy materials cheaply. When he created the Michael Myers mask, he made two versions. The first was a Don Post Emmett Kelly smiling clown mask that they put frizzy red hair on, which is funny because it's kind of a, uh, a smiling scarecrow face that Corey has and ends. And I don't know if that's like a tribute back to that, but whatever. Uh, they tested it out, and it appeared very demented and creepy. However, the other mask was a 1975 Captain James T. Kirk mask that was purchased in a costume shop on Hollywood Boulevard for $1.98. It had the eyebrows and sideburns ripped off. The face was painted bluish-white. The hair was spray-painted uh, spray brown, and the eyes were opened up more. After testing out the mask, the crew decided that it was much more creepy because it was emotionless. I love it. Um. John Carpenter's intent with a character. Also, I guess I should throw this in here because I don't know if I have this in the notes anywhere. They had one bag of leaves to use in this film. They were on such a tight budget. <gasps> so any of those scenes where you see leaves on the ground, there was a person <clears throat> with a garbage bag that was immediately running in and grabbing them before they blew away so they could use it later in the movie. Holy shit. Because it was being filmed in like spring in Pasadena. So like they didn't, you know, like they didn't have any leaves besides the ones that they had. And I want to say they had maybe two, three pumpkins at most. So that scene where uh, Tommy Doyle, like, lands on the pumpkin and it breaks apart, they had one chance to get that <gasps> right because they didn't have enough money to buy another oh pumpkin because they were, they were out of season. They couldn't get them. You yeah. Know? Uh, okay, John Carpenter's intent with the character of Michael Myers was that the audience should never be able to relate to him. And he did a good job because he's just, he's the boogeyman. He's literally what they say he is in the movie. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Hold on, give me a minute here. First one, did they, he killed his sister. Yeah, because all you know is that there's this kid that has issues that gets, I feel like Rob Zombie made you have more of an emotional attachment to him. He for sure did, yes. Yeah, but okay. And yeah, so John Carpenter did success succeed at that. Excuse me. Uh, the stabbing sound effect is a knife stabbing a watermelon. <laughs> they did a pretty good job. Yeah. With that. Of the female leads, all the girls are supposed to be in high school. Only Jamie Lee Curtis was a teenager, being nineteen at the time of shooting. Good thing the other girls were older, because lots of titties in this film. <laughs> Uh, half of the $300,000 budget was spent on the Panavision cameras so that the film could be at a 235-1 scope. Donald Pleasance was paid $20,000 for five days of work. What is that, $4,000 a day? Yeah. I mean, look where it got him, so yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, the original script titled The Babysitter Murders nope. had the events take place over the space of several days. It was a budgetary decision to change the script to have everything happen on the same day. Doing the, the doing this reduced the number of costume changes and locations required. So see, sometimes budgetary and <laughs> uh, budgetary restraints cause you to re- think outside the box and make up a better movie. Yeah. I wish that Disney would figure that out. <laughs> But we'll they never on. will. Uh, and it was decided that Halloween, the scariest night of the year, was the perfect night for this to happen. But remember, <clears> we <throat> when we discussed the first unofficial slasher in Black Christmas, Bob Clark spoke with John Carpenter before this was ever made and said, if I was to ever make a sequel to Black Christmas, I would have the character go to a mental asylum. And then he would break out on another holiday, probably Halloween because that's a spooky holiday. And then he would come back to the same place that he originally attacked and he would do the killings there. So it's kind of funny that that's what Carpenter did. I'm just saying. This is a legend. (laughs) Um, anyways, the story is based on experience John Carpenter had in college touring a psychiatric hospital. Carpenter met a child who stared at him with a look of the devil and, and according to him, it terrified me. It was not my daughter. I'm throwing that out there right now. Um, and I don't know if I have this in the notes, but, uh, he based the names of several things in this movie off places in Kentucky. Oh my God. Uh, Smith's Grove, uh, is actually a place that I've worked at. Uh, I've, I've filled in for a pharmacist there a few times. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's above Bowling Green. It's like a little bit north of Bowling Green. Uh, Warren County is actually, I want to say it's, it's around Bowling Green. That's, that's, you know, they, they mentioned that Haddonfield is Warren County and the town of Russellville is pretty close to uh, Bowling Green as well. And that's, uh, where, and, and they mentioned Russellville in the movie quite a bit. Oh, okay. Uh, because John Carpenter lived in Western Kentucky, and he actually went to Western Kentucky University before he became a director. Okay. So a lot, a lot of Kentucky stuff in that without officially being from here. Uh, Halloween was shot in 20 days in the spring of 1978. Wow. Robert England of Nightmare on M Street uh, fame uh, revealed in an interview that John Carpenter had him throw bags of dead leaves on set for a day. <laughs> what the hell? With his Freddy glove. <laughs> well, this was before he was Freddy, so yeah. this was, I mean, practice, I guess. Wow. As the film was shot out of sequence, John Carpenter created a fear meter so that Jamie Lee Curtis would know what level of terror she should be exhibiting. That's pretty. That's a pretty good idea. So, like, she was shooting the end scenes at the beginning of the movie, you know, or, or thereabouts, and he was like, "Okay, you should be a hit at this level." Like, totally freaked out, like just batshit insane. Yeah. You know. A fear uh, meter. Th- what the hell is it? Like he just like turned like he like turned the dial up when he wanted her to bring it up a notch. Basically. Oh yeah. my god. Deborah Hill wrote most of the dialogue for the female characters while John Carpenter concentrated on Dr. Loomis's speeches. That makes sense because, I mean, the female characters feel very feminine. I mean, like, it does, it's not like a guy wrote their lines yeah, or anything. Yeah, I, I have to 100% agree with that. I mean, they're talking about boys. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff that, you know, girls would chat about, you know, during in 
and so it, it feels legit. Yeah. As the as the uh, let's see, uh, the the dark lighting comes from necessity. The crew didn't have enough money for more lights. I feel like that's a good thing though. This movie has a very good use of light and dark. I feel like I would have never known until you said that. So yeah, I, I think it worked out in their favor again. Budgetary issues causing a really good film to come out of it. Like there's that scene, and I mean, in, in the 4K makes stuff darker. But there's a scene where, um, in when she goes inside the house, uh, Jamie goes inside the house, and then she finds the dead bodies. That she's standing there trying to decide what to do, and for only a split second, you could see Michael's face come out of the darkness right behind her. And, you know, and everything else is completely dark and it, 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 it works. Like yeah. it's really, it's really well done scene. Uh, actress and playboy model, Sandy Johnson, who played mm. Judith Myers said in rare 2018 interview that the only thing she didn't like about uh, making the movie is that the fake blood would stain her skin. Since she was topless during the scene where Michael kills her, the blood all applied, uh, was applied all over her bare chest and stomach and all of it had to be scrubbed off in between takes. She remembered that whoever was doing it was rough, so Jamie Lee Curtis offered to do it, and she was much gentler. What the hell? Oh, to sc- <laughs> to scrub the blood off of her. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking putting it on her. <laughs> uh, John Carpenter showed Halloween to an executive before it was finished without the music. The executive didn't find it to be scary at all. However, after the film was released, uh, she watched it again and changed her mind, an indication of how much Carpenter's score adds to the film's atmosphere. Oh, As yeah. we've said... Uh, producer Erwin Yablins confirmed this, stating that while watching the movie in the theater, audience members would regularly block their ears with their hands because the sound and the music were so scary. Wow. Uh, the Halloween theme is written in a rare 5-4 time signature. John Carpenter learned this rhythm from his father. Wait, the Halloween theme is written in the... Ra- oh, okay. Huh, Interesting. That do 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 you know that that the way that the beat hits or whatever that's that's kind of a rare thing. Uh, John Carpenter wrote the role of Linda for PJ Souls after seeing her performance in Brian De Palma's Carrie in 1976. Okay. All of the actors wore their own clothes since there was no money for the costume department. Jamie Lee Curtis was the only one who actually had a costume, and she went to J.C. Penney's for Laurie Strode's wardrobe and spent less than one hundred dollars for the entire set. And Jay-Z Penney's is one of the few remaining stores from back in that time, and they are hanging on by a thread. <laughs> Although John Carpenter originally hoped to either get Peter Cushing or Sir Christopher Lee to place Dr. Sam Loomis, he was thrilled when Donald Pleasance accepted, of whom he was a huge fan. Pleasance would uh, easily be the oldest and most experienced person in production, so understandably Carpenter was quite intimidated when they first uh, when they met for the first time. Pleasant stated or started by stating that he didn't understand or like the script, saying, I don't know why I'm in this movie and I don't know who my character is. The only reason I'm doing this movie is because I have alimony to pay and my daughter is in England in a rock and roll group. And she said the music that you did for Assault on Precinct, Precinct 13 was cool. Okay. <laughs> Although Pleasance asked Carpenter difficult questions about this character, he turned out to be a good-humored, big-hearted individual. Uh, Carpenter later found out that Pleasance simply wanted to test him to find out if he had any real passion for the project. Uh, Pleasance became great friends with Carpenter, went on to appear in two of his other films. Yeah. So basically, Donald Pleasance wanted to see if uh, Carpenter was a bullshit artist, and he acted like a tough guy when they first met to kind of suss him out. That's know. hella funny. Uh, a young Jamie Lee Curtis was so disappointed with her performance that she became convinced that she would be fired after only the first day of filming. 
When her phone rang that night and it was John Carpenter on the phone, Curtis was certain it was the end of her movie career. Instead, Carpenter called to congratulate her and tell her he was very happy with the way things had gone. The fact that she was Janet Lee's daughter probably didn't hurt. According to Hill, Curtis wasn't Carpenter's first choice. Uh, she says that she wanted the daughter of the, uh, she says he wanted the daughter of the person on Lassie. Wow. <laughs> Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's first feature film, she was paid a reported eight thousand dollars. <laughs> eight thousand. Oh, okay. And Donald Pleasance was paid twenty thousand. Damn. Yep. And she's like, uh, aside from Michael, I mean, I guess this is a trifecta of stars, realistically, because there's Donald Pleasance, kind of, but even he, I feel like he's a little less. But then there's Jamie Lee Curtis, and then there's Michael. Yeah, they're pretty much the three people in the movie. Yeah. Uh, as the movie was shot in early spring, uh, the crew had to buy paper leaves from a decorator and paint them in the desired autumn colors, then scatter them in the filming locations. To save money, after a scene was filmed, the leaves were collected and reused. Uh, but as uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter said in a uh, audio commentary, the trees are quite full and green, and even some palm trees can be seen in Illinois. Alrighty. <laughs> Uh, the Myers house with locale found in South Pasadena that was largely the decrepit abandoned place seen in the majority of the film. All the scenes that took place in the present day were therefore shot first because the house had to look ordinary and furnished for the early scenes with the young Michael Myers uh, that were and they were shot last. All uh, Almost the whole cast and crew worked together to clean the place, move in furniture, put up wallpaper, paint the walls, and set up running water and electricity wherever they filmed, and then take it all uh, out whenever they were through uh, shooting the scene in a single take reportedly took an entire night of filming and only stopped because the sunlight started to come in. What the fuck? So they did what they did with X, basically. They yeah. took an old rundown place and then went back and made it pretty. <laughs> okay, whatever works. Uh, the character Michael Myers was named after the European distributor of Carpenter's previous film, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, who had entered the film into a British movie contest where it won first prize and became a bigger success than in the USA. The naming was kind of a weird thank you for the film's overseas success, although Mr. Myers reportedly joked that the makers technically owed him royalties for the use of his name. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis admits that she made up the Just the Two of Us song she sang to herself as the movie's beginning when she was walking home from school. That was terrible. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, uh, prior to the movie, a book was written by Curtis Richards and reveals more of the story behind Michael's Myers' rage, thoughts, and motives. However, the book is very rare. Oh, that's pretty so. cool. Uh, John Carpenter composed the score in just four days. In four notes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, the scene where the shape appears seems to appear out of the darkness behind Laurie was accomplished by using a simple dimmer switch on the light that slowly illuminated the mask. Director of photography, Dean Cundy, likened it to the eyes getting adjusted to the dark. Okay. Uh, for its first airing on television, extra scenes had to be added to make it fit the desired time slot. John Carpenter filmed additional scenes at the Mental Institute inside Michael's cell during the production of Halloween 2, which provided retrospective hints as to why Michael is targeting Laurie against his better judgment. This version was only available on DVD very briefly, and home media versions uh, since then have uh, been the theatrical version. Um, so basically, if you watch the TV version of it, there's more scenes that kind of give more background on Michael, basically. Um, 
Donald Pleasance did all of his scenes in only five days. The total duration of his scenes is just over 18 minutes. According to the crew, Pleasance had consumed two bottles of wine <laughs> before doing the scene where he and Nurse are talking about Michael in the car. Director John Carpenter was worried that he would be incomprehensible and had to talk with the actor beforehand, but to the crew's amazement, Pleasance pulled it off. So he was nearly balls off his ass and then, you know, drunk, but he's, he's fine in that scene, so whatever. He's okay in that scene. <laughs> I th- I th- he's I wild. I think it's funny in that scene because uh, uh, she he says something to the effect of uh, uh, she says uh, wh- why or she says something like he he's a human or something like that. And he looks at her and he says, "If you say so." Yeah. <laughs> uh, PJ Souls went to the screening of the movie after it was released, sitting in the fourth row of the regular audience. She was very amused when during her nude scene. And line of see anything you like, a male audience member in the front shouted out, Hell yeah, I do. <laughs> Unaware that she was right behind him. Dennis Quaid, who Souls was dating at the time, asked her if she wanted him to confront the man, but she declined to amuse from the experience to, to bother with. It. What the hell, dude? Like, you know why they put those titties on the screen for people's enjoyment. So the fact that somebody's actually enjoying them, let the lady have her moment. <laughs> Uh, originally, Nick Castle was on set just to watch the movie being filmed. It was at the suggestion of John Carpenter that he took up the role of Michael Myers. Fucking so the lucky. dude literally, the dude literally showed up. He's like, "Can I watch this?" And yeah. Carpenter's like, "Yeah, if you put on that mask and that uh, mechanics outfit and go around trying to stab people." What the hell? <laughs> like Nick Castle is not a piece of meat, John Carpenter. Like what? That you just want to be like, hey, you're looking pretty. Why are you looking so swole over there? <laughs> uh. Nick Castle is probably one of my favorite uh, portrayals of Michael too. The way that just some of the stuff that he, the way, the way he acts as the character. Yeah. Uh, to ensure Michael Myers would break the window of the station wagon as Loomis approaches the insane asylum, a wrench was adhered to his uh, forearm and hand. It was then painted flesh colored to hide from the camera, but it's still clearly visible in the shot if you look hard enough. What the? F- <laughs> what? At the beginning of the scene where the, the nurse is inside the car and also yeah. Michael's like hand okay. like breaks the window, there's a wrench there that looks that's colored like flesh if you really look hard enough. Oh you can my see god. It. Um when they were um shooting the scenes for the start of the film, all the ones the scene from Michael's point of view, they couldn't get the six year old actor, uh, child actor until the last day. So the movie's producer, Deborah Hill volunteered to be Michael for any of the scenes where the hand comes in the view. This is why nails on young Michael's hands look so well manicured and varnished. Uh, John Carpenter's direction for Nick Castle and his role as Myers was minimal. For example, when Castle asked what Myers' motivation was for a particular scene, Carpenter replied that his motivation was to walk from one set marker to another. Uh. <laughs> Carpenter also instructed Castle to tilt his head a couple of times as if he was observing the corpse, particularly in the scene where Myers impaled Bob against the wall. <laughs> Uh, originally, Dr. Loomis was supposed to have a phone conversation with his wife. Donald Pleasance didn't do it, saying he thought the character shouldn't have a family or a past. I think that I think works. Yeah, I think that's a better decision. Uh, Deborah Hill and John Carpenter were a couple, not just business par- partners when they were working on this film. Jamie Lee Curtis has said in interviews, they were my horror movie parents. They, uh, I was the child, and they, and whenever they broke up in 1979, I cried. Aww. Uh, he traded her up for Adrian Barbeau, so it's all right. Yeah. Uh, 
the opening shot appears to be a single tracking point of view shot, but there are three cuts because the Panavision cameras uh, used could only hold about five minutes of footage. The first cut is when the mask goes on, the second and third after the murder has taken place, and the shape is exiting the room. This is done to make the point of view appear to move faster. Uh, as the film was uh, made in spring, the crew had huge difficulty in procuring pumpkins. Only three were obtained, so the scene where one is broken on the ground had to be done in one take. The crew <laughs> later got another type of green pumpkin and simply painted it one. Wow. <laughs> uh, that Michael Myers could drive a car despite having been committed to an asylum at the age of six inspired many laughs, but the novelization actually came up with a simple but effective explanation. Uh, when Dr. Loomis drove Michael to sanity hearings over the years, Michael simply watched very closely and carefully as Loomis operated the car. I still think that's bullshit. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, remember, even if Michael sat in the back seat and there was a, a screen of bulletproof glass partition, Michael could still look over the doctor's shoulder uh, without uh, uh, you know Loomis realizing what he was doing. Uh, the curse of Michael Myers provides a retroactive explanation of the, que- of the question um, later on, though. Uh, according to screenwriter producer Deborah Hill, the character Laurie Stroh was named after John Carpenter's first girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, as has been noted, the killer is referred to as the shape in the script and credits for the film. The word shape was used by the Salem witch trial judges to describe specters or spirits of the accused doing mischief or harming another person. So a little bit of a link there. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis didn't see herself as a repressed virgin and was surprised when she found out uh, which of the three girls she would be playing. She notes that she would have probably been better suited for the smart aleck of the group, which <laughs> would have been Annie. Yeah. Uh, Carpenter purposely took a more strange, suggestive approach with the gore in this movie. He learned his lesson with his last movie, Assault on Precinct 13, when he killed off Kim Richards' character and the audience wound up hating him. Uh, producer Erwin Yablins also insisted that very little blood be used because he was a fan of radio plays where all the horror happens in the audience's minds. Uh, because of this, Carpenter purposely took a more discreet approach to Bloodshot a la Psycho as opposed to over-the-top gore fest uh, of Bay of Blood from 71. Which we've reviewed. Uh, yes, uh, and Psycho. We've covered both of them. Uh, Linda's line, cute, Bob, real cute, is actually a reference to the Donnie Marie Osmond television series, which is popular at the time. Uh, it was a catchphrase repeated throughout the television uh, show uh, in the introductory conversations between Donnie and Marie, uh, obviously with Donnie and Marie instead of Bob. The, the, this contemporary catchphrase has been la- largely forgotten, and the line makes sense on its own, and so the reference is generally unacknowledged. Uh, Deborah Hill worked for no salary, but a percentage of the profit says the film grossed in excess of 70 million. This proved to be highly Ooh, lucrative. Good job. Uh, John Carpenter demanded $10,000 to write, produce and direct and score the film, which was a considerable fee for a director who had only done two small movies. He also wanted to be billed above the title, calling it John Carpenter's Halloween producer, uh, Erwin Gabbins agreed as long as the budget didn't exceed $300,000. I thought was it three hundred thousand or was it three thirty five? It was I, it was around three three twenty because they when they got Doctor Loomis on and they told him that what his budget what he requested they were like that's a pretty big name yeah you get another twenty thousand dollars okay. Hire. Uh, Dr. Loomis is Michael Myers' psychiatrist, uh, uh, or Sam Loomis is. Sam Loomis is also the name of Marion Crane's secret lover in Psycho from 1960, so there's another link between the movies. Oh, my God. Um, 
the name Loomis is also used in the in the movie Scream, as you know. Billy uh, Loomis, yeah. Uh, in addition, the psycho being a major influence, the name Marion also makes an appearance in the movie as that of the nurse played by Nancy Stevens. Like Marion Crane and Sam Loomis, Marion Chambers is closely connected to Dr. Sam Loomis. Uh, the film takes place primarily in the fictional town of Haddonfield, Illinois. Uh, Haddonfield, New Jersey is the hometown of screenwriter Deborah Hill. Uh, John Carpenter stated on the 25th anniversary disc that the original title sequence was to show a long shot of a sidewalk ending with a Halloween mask on the floor. The idea was dropped, and the more iconic title sequence of the jack-o'-lantern was used, which I think is better. Yeah. Uh, and Tommy Lee Wallace cut out the pumpkin for the opening credits. Look at that. Iconic. Uh, uh, director John Carpenter and producer Deborah Hill felt that Dr. Loomis should be played by a classy British actor with star power. Uh, Peter Cushing was the first choice to play the part, but his agent declined on his behalf. According to Carpenter in a phone conversation with Hill, Cushing's agent told her that since the success of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, any film that featured Peter Cushing would bill him as the star, even though Cushing's film career was failing for years, and he was only a featured character in Star Wars. Christopher Lee declined due to a low salary of 25000 and regretted the decision later. Um, that would have been cool to see Christopher Lee, but I, he would have been different energy for yeah. sure. <clears throat> uh, several other high-profile actors, both British and American, rejected the offer as well. Donald Pleasance uh, also turned down the offer initially, but was talked into accepting the role by his daughter, who was a fan, again, of Carpenter's uh, uh, work on uh, Salt on Precinct 13. Uh, when Dr. Loomis is fuming at Dr. Wynn about uh, Michael Myers' escape from the sanitarium the night before, there's a glimpse of the real-life place that stood in, the, and stood in for Smith's Grove, Lavinia Hospital and Sanitarium in Altadena, California. This uh, institution's name is pr prominently displayed on the welcome mat as they exit the facility. Okay. When Laurie Strode and Annie Brackett are driving the car, they are listening to Don't Fear the Reaper by Bluey... Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, this is on while Michael Myers is driving behind them. Yep. Uh, Laurie Strode remarks that she would rather go out with unseen character uh, Ben Tramer. The name came from Bennett Tramer, an old college friend of Doctor of John Carpenter's. Uh, and Ben Tramer gets his in the second movie. <laughs> Uh, John Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, and Nick Castle were all a rock band together called the Coupe de Villes. The <laughs> band continued to record songs and occasionally performed live on and off until at least 1986, including a theme song for Big Trouble in Little China and an appearance in The Boy Who Could Fly in 1986. So you're telling me Nick Castle was just watching a movie being made one day and got cast to be in it and then got to be in a band with John Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace? And then he went on to direct and produce and write. I mean, he, he did it all shit. after that. Uh, before shooting the film, John Carpenter's cinematographer, Dean Cundy, uh, viewed Chinatown in not, from 1974. They were so impressed by the movie's cinematography that they decided to duplicate the color palette, burnt orange for the day shots, coupled with blue backlighting for the night shots, and use of lighting for the fictional uh, town of Haddonfield and the overall look of the film. Uh, William Shatner did not find out about his face being the mask of Michael Myers until many years later. He sued for past royalties. They settled out of court. Shatner donated the settlement to charity. Ironically, the case could have been easily dismissed as the mask was a likeness of Captain Kirk, to which Shatner does not own the rights. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> so they settled out of court and gave him money that he donated to charity, but technically he had no reason to even sue because it was Captain Kirk, and 
even though it's Shatner's face for the character, he doesn't own the rights to that character. Yeah, that's funny. Nick Castle admitted that the only reason he accepted the opportunity was for a chance to witness what goes on directing a film. My only reason for being on the set was to kind of demystify the directing experience for me because uh, Carpenter was a pal. They were shooting majority of this near my house, really, and he said, well, why don't you just be the guy walking around in the mask and you'll be there the whole time? <laughs> so he oh, lived I like guess. Three- so Nick Castle lived like a few houses down from where they were filming. He just walked up and he's like, hey, can I kind of watch, you know? Could you imagine? Like, I, I want to do that. I just want to walk and be like, hey, I want to watch this film. Oh, we want you in this film. We want you to be the lead role. Like, what? Moi? <laughs> uh, in an interview, Tony Moran, who by all accounts is uh, kind of an asshole, by the way, he plays the face of Michael as an adult. Uh, he claimed that the reason Michael Myers was played by more than one actor was because they could only use uh, those who were available on each day of filming. He also added that Michael Myers was played by six actors in total, including himself, Nick Castle, and John Carpenter. So Tony Moran was the adult Michael when unmasked at the end of the movie with a wonky eye. Uh, Will Sandin was Michael at age six. Carpenter was Michael during the point of view shots. Deborah Hill is the hand that picks <laughs> up the knife in the intro. Tommy Lee Wallace uh, during scenes where Michael broke through scenery, and then finally Nick Castle for every other thing that Michael does is when he's masked. Which is funny because <laughs> Nick Castle, he's like only 5'10". So. Yeah, he's, he's not very tall. Uh, when Laurie says it was the boogeyman to Dr. Loomis in the film on her right cheek, uh, viewer left her noticeable lines. Jamie Lee ex- has explained those lines were there because the scene was shot immediately following lunch, during which she had fallen asleep on the couch, uh, which was corduroy, and they had left an impression on her face. <laughs> oh, my God. Of, co- <laughs> of course it was corduroy back in the 70s. Uh, this was called Witches Night in Italy, as Halloween was not a commonplace celebration there in 1978. D- don't. <laughs> You're not allowed to ch- just because it's not from your area. Shut up. <laughs> uh, because PJ Souls was with Dennis Quaid at the time of filming, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill wanted him to be cast in the role of Bob Sims. However, Quaid was busy working on another project, and John Michael Graham was cast in the role instead. Uh, Sandy Johnson, posed, uh, who played Judith Myers, posed fully nude for Playboy before getting the acting. She said in a rare interview that she did for to earn money to help her dad who had cancer. Aww. Her willingness to go nude is how she got cast in five different films uh, she made in her career, three in 78 and two in 79. Except for the horror film Halloween, all were teen sex comedies. She appeared nude in every film and then immediately left the business. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's That was a good reason for doing it, though. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace has worked second unit for John Carpenter on this film and was originally chosen by Carpenter uh, and the producers to direct Halloween 2. His approach was more of a Halloween H2O 20 years later approach where it's five years later uh, uh, and uh, Laurie is in graduate school when Michael resurfaces, but Carpenter insisted that it had to be the very next day kind of sequel and the studio and producers were insisting on a lot more blood due to the success of Friday the 13th. And because of this, Wallace decided he wasn't comfortable with the sequel and he declined. However, he did end up directing uh, part three, Season of the Witch. So his idea for the second film was to skip ahead and that she was in school and that Michael would come back after her at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, Laurie's father is played by Peter Griffith. 
He is also the father of famous actress Melanie Griffith and the ex-husband of another Hitchcock veteran, Tippi Hedren. For some reason, this character never shows up again after the original opening of the scenes of the Halloween. He doesn't even come visit his daughter in the hospital in part two, which has been a thing. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, the original budget was increased, like I said, from 300 to 325 and this was to add, uh, accounted for Donald Pleasance's salary. So, you know, there you go. All right. John Carpenter himself dismisses the notion that Halloween is a morality play regarding is it merely a horror film. According to Carpenter, critics completely missed the point there. He explains the one girl who's the most sexually uptight just keeps stabbing the guy with a long knife. She's the most sexually frustrated. She's the one that killed him, not because she's a virgin, but because all that sexually repressed energy starts coming out. She uses all these phallic symbols on the guy. And he's right, she does. But that also set in the motion that final girls usually kill with a phallic symbol. I mean, <laughs> he set the tone because of it, you know. Oh, my God. Uh, producer Erwin uh, Yabbins became uh, involved in the movie because he had uh, distributed John Carpenter's previous film, Assault in Precinct 13, by his own company, Compass International, uh, because his wife had told him that he would go into making movies and he felt that Carpenter had great talent. He decided to produce his next movie. None of the big studios at the time were interested in distributing Halloween, so Yablins decided to do it himself again. Although interest was initially modest, positive word of mouth, like I said, caused the number of screens and ticket sales to double almost each day for the first week after release. Uh, MCA Universal later produced and distributed the next two sequels in the early 80s. Uh, features uh, groundbreaking use of Panavision's recent Panaglide uh technology by Raymond Stella. This allowed for the moving shots that mimic the person's point of view. Uh, throughout the film, the 1951 uh, film The Thing from Another World plays on the TV, uh, which is funny because in 1982, John Carpenter would go on to direct the uh, the remake of that uh, called The Thing. Um, and uh, coincidentally, uh, Carpenter was approached to direct The Thing after the studio was unhappy with the concept provided by Toby Hooper of Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. Uh, and um, and that's how he got that, that movie, which didn't do a lot at the time, but yeah. is, horror fans fucking love it for good reason. All right, Death Holler Awards. What do we think of Laurie Strode? I, don't I think, think you've much, already said your piece. Yeah, I don't think much of her at all in this film. She was not... She survived. That was it. I think she's. I think she's fine. I think you're confusing her with part two, where she's literally nothing in that movie. I mean, Maybe. she does nothing in part two. I did smash these two together pretty hardcore, um, but I mean, she's been stalked by him through the whole movie. She's uh, she's got her blinkers out. She's worried about him. Nobody else is listening to her. When uh, when the shit goes down, she actually does attack him back. And I mean, even though she's more of a uh, a wilting flower than some of her other final girls. I mean, she does stand up to him at least. Yeah. Um, she, she, she definitely had the mama bear instinct. She took care of them kids. Like she made, yes. she was like, I'm not gonna let anything happen to you. So she did stand up for that. But like, she barely survived. She got lucky at best. It was, you know, if it weren't for um, Loomis doing most of the scaring him away, because that's all he did was scare him away temporarily. No one did anything. Uh, I, I guess. I still think that, I mean, personally, I think that she's, uh, I mean, there's a reason she's the model that they were all based on because she did everything 
that a final girl ultimately ends up having to do. It's just in part two, they do away with all that. She's basically just there. Yeah. Like, there's no purpose to her. In part it doesn't two. get better. No. I mean, they, they, it does in the redos. In I the mean, redos. Oh, yeah. She, Lori Strode turns into something completely different in the redo. She earns her keep for sure. Um, but I think she does a good job of showing a regular person in that event. Like, I mean, yeah, she, that's she, true. She does her best and like, she's freaking out. I mean, her friends are dead. Like she's just mentally breaking down, but doing her best to make sure that the fucking kids are taken care of. So I, I, I like her. I mm. think she's done a good job in this. Yeah. Uh, Michael, this is my favorite Michael, just because mm-hmm. like I said, he is the boogeyman. Like yeah. he, the soulless, you know, stalker that just shows up. Yeah. She randomly came to his parents' house and you're dead, bitch. You you shouldn't have came around. That's that's the only reason. Yeah, Michael can teleport too. <laughs> he does he does disappear quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, quickly. Which is funny because in part two, he's so fucking slow that it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's uh... <laughs> I don't know, but if it weren't for the bitches that be tripping in these films, he there was no way he'd ever have a chance. And then he really kicks it in the air. I think it was the Rob Zombie films. He's a fucking runner. I'm like, what the fuck? When did you get he's sponsored a, by Nike? He's a runner and he's a beast. I mean, yes. he is tall as fuck. He's strong as fuck. I mean, they had no business getting a man that was six foot nine being Michael Myers, bigger than Jason Voorhees of all people, <laughs> and then going back to like six foot two in the final three films. <laughs> uh, best kill for me is Bob. Oh, I mean, yes. Getting ghosted, but I'm. <laughs> That was also the best uh, Michael Myers. Yes, the ghost version. Yeah, he has, like, Michael Myers, whether you want to believe it or not, does have a sense of humor in some of his kills. He, Yeah, he really does. I mean, and he's also smarter than, like, you know, Jason for sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, he he tricks people, I mean, quite a bit in these movies uh, in a way that, like, a more human character would. Yeah. Uh, best Scream is uh, going to be Laurie. Yeah, she's the one that does the bulk of it. I mean, the rest of them don't even realize they're dead until it happens. Yeah. Uh, best boobs, got to give it to Linda because they're on display for more than than Judith. Judith has got some good ones. Yeah, but but Linda's is on display for a longer length of time. Yeah, Judith had some nice old juggies. I was genuinely surprised. <laughs> uh, best side character, I'm giving it to Sheriff Brackett because he's a generally likable guy, even if he's not in the movie for very long. <laughs> He was getting on my nerves a little bit. I mean, uh, but I can't. Da- huh? His daughter got on my nerves more. That's why I'm giving her the Franklin Award. Annie Brackett. She's yeah. Kinda, she's kind of just annoying. I mean, I, I could understand if you gave it to the, the kid that she was babysitting. Oh, now, yeah. That would, that would be kind of in, in the vein, too. But Annie, for sure, to me. No, Annie but, was definitely annoying. And she definitely gets the Franklin. And I can't think of a better side character. But I don't. He was not. In my opinion, not enjoyable. I don't know. I just, a lot of, I guess in the situation, though, he had a lot of reason to um, doubt Loomis. And Loomis was just fucking wild off the bat, dude. Just like, oh, we gotta do this. This is happening. He's here. Loomis, who? Who is here? Who is this? Who's he's, Michael he's Myers? Much, he's much worse, though, in the second one. It's like, I shot him six times. I shot him six times. And they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like what? Yeah, explain yourself. 
even because Loomis, you got to remember, he he is a doctor. He's a what a psychiatrist. Yeah, he, he is. So he knows how use to use your words, Loomis. Yes, he knows how to use his words. He knows how to calm down in the situation. He knows how to. He knows how you have to speak in order to make something happen, and he does not do that in this film. Uh, that he, yeah. I'm going to leave it at that because we have another award that he belongs in. <laughs> you there, Reverend? Yes. Oh. Um, so we already said that Annie gets the, are you, are you still there? I'm here. Yeah. Uh Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right. You weren't responding. I was just checking. Uh, um, the, how annoying is doom profit? Uh, Dr. Loomis, it's he is Dr. the best Loomis. prophet. He's uh, the worst. <laughs> uh, dumbest moment, Michael driving that fucking car. I like, God damn, it's so stupid. Like, there's no reason why he should be able to drive as well as he does. He even looks sideways before che- before crossing, before he pulls onto another street. Like, he checks his uh, yeah. mirror and everything. There's no reason why he would give two shits. That was hella funny. No, it was, it was worth it. I, I like it. 